It's a delight to be here with you one more time, and uh, we're so glad to be here with your pastor. Um, there's no one else I'd rather be with, and uh, I mean that. I've so enjoyed his company and his mentorship in my life, and I'm glad you're here. I've told you this before, but I mean it. If you're traveling south, you're going to Pigeon Forge, but you need a place to stay, call me. My number's out there, and I'll help you pray that you can find a place to stay. <laughs> now, I mean that. That's the kind of person I... <laughs> uh, you come on, and we'll find a place for you. You got a friend in Tennessee, and it's a delight to be here uh, with you, and I hope that you'll come south and be with us there. I, uh, I want to direct your attention to the 131st Psalm. Uh, one of the things that is actually hard to do, and I think many of you can identify, you know it from firsthand experience, but one of the things that is really hard to do is to know how to handle life when it sort of falls apart on you. It is sort of complicated when you're in that room and the doctor says, uh, you know, I don't know that what you have is operable and I think we need to think about uh, maybe keeping you comfortable because I don't know that we can address what you have. I think it's too far gone. I mean, if you're there, I, I think it crosses your mind, how do, how do I react? How do I handle this? I mean, what am I supposed to do with that? I mean, when that person that you've committed your life to walks in and, and they say they want a divorce and you didn't see it coming, I think it crosses your mind later that day, what am I supposed to do with this? How does a Christian handle this kind of news? I think if you're the child in that situation, maybe it's even harder for you because the stability in your life has come to an end. And I think you sit there and it crosses your mind. How am I supposed to live my life? What am I supposed to do with this? As a believer, what's my next step forward? And it would help you maybe to know, first of all, that if you're there, if you ever find yourself in a situation like that, know that you're not the first one who's ever been there before. Uh, the Bible is filled with people who came to those places in their life. And one of those people that I think often came to that crossroads was King David. And in the 131st Psalm, I think he is writing to people who are in moments when it seems like their life has fallen apart. And it's three short verses. Let me read them to you. Verse 1, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, nor do I concern myself with great matters, nor are the things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a winged child with his mother, like a winged child is my soul within me. O Lord, O Israel, Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. We don't know when David wrote these words, 
what we do know is that they could have been written at any uh, of a multitude of times in his life. David's life is well known by many people. His life is one that we're introduced to quite frequently in, in Sunday school from an early age. We know that David was not his father's favorite. When the prophet came to anoint a king, David was in the field, and he was the youngest of the boys, and his father didn't consider him as someone that might be the future king of Israel. We know that he was not his father's favorite. We know that uh, there was that day when he came to the battlefield and saw that great giant Goliath uh, intimidating the armies and something welled up within him and so with a slingshot he went out and defeated the giant and won the day for the nation of Israel and for a little while it looked like his life had turned around. Wherever he went the girls sang for him and people wanted to be around him and he was a great champion of the people but those days were short-lived. Uh, because very quickly Saul, Saul's heart turned against him and jealousy overcame him. And so for 7 to 13 years, depending on how you count, he quickly became public enemy number one. Saul turned on him and David was driven into the wilderness with a few hundred outlaw men. And so for many years he lived cave to cave. There were days when he said and he looked down and on Bethlehem, which seemed to be years away, and said how I would love to have a drink of water from that well down there. Uh, those are difficult days, and perhaps these words are written during those days. We know that the wilderness years came to an end, and he was crowned king. And for years, he fought to expand the borders of his kingdom, north, south, east, and west, and those were difficult years. Those were building years. Those were years of constant warfare as the nations tried this young king and tried his might. But battle after battle, God gave him the victory. But perhaps this psalm was written during those years. They were difficult years. And then just when it seemed like the throne was firmly upon his brow, just when it seemed like the nation was secure, there came that day when on the palace roof he saw the woman bathing two houses down. He made what seemed to be the greatest mistake of his life. God brought good from it, but great pain into it came into his life because he looked there and she was another man's wife and he sent for her and we don't know what transpired, but we know that he slept with her and he sent her home. And I think that he thought he got away with it. Until a, a few days later, maybe a few weeks I suppose, a note came to him as he sat on his throne which simply said, I'm pregnant, sign B. And he knew he had to do something. So he brought the husband home. He assumed the husband would go to his wife and the husband would be sent back to the battlefront and he couldn't tell if that kid was two years old or two years and two months by the time he got back. But the husband came, he wouldn't go. And so David conspired with plan B 
to make sure that husband was on the next battlefront where he was sure to die. And then he went on about his life again. What he didn't know that sometimes secrets that are covered on earth are on the front page in heaven, that it wasn't a covered thing up there. And so he sent for Bathsheba. He brought her to him. They were married. And again, he thought that he had covered that sin until the prophet came to him. And he preached one of the great sermons in the Bible. He baited David. David, always the shepherd, always sensitive towards the sheep, always caring for the sheep as a, as a young man. He baited him. He said, there's been a problem in the kingdom, David. There's been a great travesty. There is a man who lives in the kingdom. He has but one sheep. It sleeps with the children, David. It's the pet. But he has a neighbor, and the neighbor has great herds of, of sheep. But to feed his friends, this rich, powerful man went across the road, so to speak. He got the lamb that these children played with, that they slept with, David. This is a pet, David. He brought it and he slaughtered it, uh, fed it to his friends. What should we do about this man? And David said, the man who did this must die. Sensitive towards sheep, not so much towards people anymore. And the prophet said, well, David, you're the man. And the reality came to David that what had been covered on earth was an open scandal in heaven. And the prophet said, but you'll be forgiven, David. Your kingdom won't be taken from you. But the sword would never depart from your house. A few months later, that child that was born in that act of iniquity uh, or, or conceived in that act of, act of iniquity was born. But the Lord said it won't live. For seven days, David kneeled, he begged, he pleaded with the Lord. And I can imagine David reached a moment where he said, Lord, take me. Don't put my sin on the child. Don't punish me. I'm the one who did it. The Lord said, no, no. The child will come to me, and someday you'll come to it. But you can't have the child. I'll, I'll hold it for you till you get there, David. And so this passage could have been written in that dark moment. But again, we know that David's life from then on was filled with trouble after trouble after trouble. A little bit after the loss of this child, uh, he had a son, Amnon, who developed an infatuation with his half-sister Tamar. He tried to seduce her, but uh, she would not give in to that situation. She was a woman of virtue. The, the son uh, devised a scheme. He played like he was sick, and he asked Tamar to bring some food. And when she brought the food, he viciously raped his half-sister, and then he threw her out on the curb like she was a piece of trash. She went to her full brother, Absalom, and said, give me vengeance, help me. I don't know why she didn't go to her dad. But Absalom said, I'll help you. And for two years, he nursed his anger, and he sought a path to vengeance against his half-brother, and he found his opportunity. And two years later, he took his vengeance on Amnon and killed him. David loved Absalom, 
And it was his inclination to forgive Absalom, to wipe the slate clean, to bring him back into the kingdom, and to embrace his son. But what he did not know was that Absalom had just not nursed his hatred against Amnon, but he nursed his anger against David too. I think he probably held David responsible too for what had happened against Tamar. And so the Bible says that Absalom went about and uh, he would sit outside the courtroom where David was the Supreme Court Justice in the land. And when the people who lost came out, Absalom would approach them and said, and would say, you know what happened? He wasn't right. If I were king, that would have never happened to you. I would have ruled in your favor. This happened for several weeks, several months, maybe into the years, until the day came when Absalom had the majority of the nation in his following. And when he thought the moment was right, he seized it. And he overthrew his dad. He drove his dad out into the wilderness. His dad was on the run. And then he went into the palace and did unspeakable things to the wives of his father to show his dominance in the land. David escaped with Bathsheba, and he rallied his army, and he was able to come back and defeat Absalom. But he sent out the command, whatever you do, don't kill Absalom. I love him. My heart is with him. There's still hope for Absalom. But his generals, Joab in particular, found him and made sure his body never made it back to his dad alive. And you have that passage in Scripture where David cries, Oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom. He said, I wish it were me that died and not you. Wish I was dead. I wish you were alive. Could have been written at that time. There were other moments in David's life that followed, but I think you get the picture. David lived a life, and amazingly for a man after God's own heart, he didn't have many peaceful years. Now, he was God's man. Even when God forgave him, God touchingly reconfirmed that he loved him. When the child was born, uh, which later became Solomon soon after the first child had died, that child was conceived. When the time came for that child to be born, David gave him a name. And names are important in the Hebrew language because they often are a reflection of where the namer is at that time in his life or her life. You remember when Rachel was dying in childbirth and, and in her pain she named her child Benjamin, which means son of my sorrow. The name of the son reflected where the mother was at the time of the birth. Re uh, Sarah laughed. Remember when Sarah laughed when she found out she was going to have a baby? So she named her son Isaac, which means laughter. It reflected where she was when that announcement came. So when David is bringing Solomon, or looking at Solomon, or this son, he names him Solomon. And Solomon means, I'm at peace. And I think David was at peace. This was some time after the condemnation came on him, and months had passed, 
the relationship had been restored. David says, I'm at peace. But remember, God sent the prophet back, and God said, tell David his name won't be Solomon, it will be Jedidiah. And Jedidiah means loved of God. And so it's interesting that David says, I'm naming this child, I'm at peace. It was a long road, I made a mess of it, but I found peace. And God said, no, David, you're just not at peace, you are loved of God. And yet, trouble after trouble after trouble after trouble. David knows what it's like to feel like his life has ended and will never be the same. He knows what it's like to wonder if he'll survive the next year. He knows what it's like to bury his children. He knows what it's like to have his heart broken to the point that he says, I wish I was dead. And I think out of that experience in life comes this psalm. And the first thing that David says in the first verse is that when you're in that place, you ought not ask why. It's an interesting thing. He says, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Now, it's interesting that David says it because David's not dumb. David was a genius. If David was in this room tonight, he would be by far the smartest man in the room. If David was in any room in America today, he would probably be the smartest man in the room. He was a once in 200 years genius. How many other people do you know in the world who was the greatest king and greatest musician that their nation ever had? That was David. If people are singing your songs in 3,000 years, that means you're a genius. And so he was this great military genius. He was a great artistic genius. There was nobody like David. He had the IQ. If we all sit down tonight and David was with us and we wrote the paper, why do bad things happen to good people? David would have the best paper. He was brilliant. But he says, even at that, I don't ask those questions. I don't go there. I don't ask lofty questions. I don't try to figure out why bad things happen to good people. I, I don't go there. I don't take my mind there. I don't dig through that stuff. I don't go down that alley. I don't do it. I can remember when I was in college, I would buy those books on why do bad things happen to good people and why do these things happen to people and not to others and why do the good die young and I read all of that philosophy. Then I grew up. Funny thing is, it doesn't help you when the problem comes. It sure doesn't. And David says, I don't go down that road. I don't dwell on those issues. Those are too lofty for me. Uh, he's a genius, but he's genius enough to know that's a dead-end street that you go down. It's true. Martin Luther once said, and he had had his share of dark places, Martin Luther said, if you want to get anywhere with God, you have to crucify the word why. If you think about it, that's true. Think about Job. 
for all the wisdom that Job had and all the advisors that he had who said some smart things, I guess, they were a million miles away from the truth. They weren't even in the vicinity of what was actually happening. They were trying to figure out why all this had happened to Job and nobody even got close to saying God and the devil have a wager about whether he'll, whether he'll fall to this temptation. Nobody even thought about that. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. I remember when my dad was on his deathbed. Um, I went home on a Monday and he died on a Thursday. But his mind was quick to the end. It was a Tuesday about 48 hours before he died. We were sitting there and I, he was laying in the bed and I was sitting beside him. He looked at me and he said, you know, the one question that I've had my whole life that I've never had sufficiently answered, that's always troubled me, was why did Jesus let John the Baptist get his head cut off? Why did he do that? He said, uh, don't understand that. I don't understand why God saves some and then seems to abandon others. I don't know the answer to that. And then we moved on. You can't think about those things. They're dead-end streets. Nothing down that road. Nothing down that road. And David says, I don't go down that road. I don't go down that road. Those things are too lofty for me. I don't do that. But verse 2, he says, but I do act like a child in the best sense of the word. He says, I don't think about the whys and the hows and why this happened and why not that happened. But he says, but I calm and quiet my soul like a winged child with his mother, like a winged child is my soul within me. A winged child is a child that's two or three or four years old. It's no longer nursing. But it's still a child. Uh, and uh, one of the things about winged child children is that when they get hurt, they just want to sit in mama's lap. I have a four-year-old named Sam, and uh, there's nobody like Mama. Even when Mama's not there, he'll tough it out, but he doesn't always come to Daddy. But when Mama's in the house, he wants to be in Mama's lap if something got skinned or something got hurt. He just, I, he just wants the love of Mother. He doesn't ask why it happened. He doesn't know, know how it happened all the time. But if, if he can just get in Mama's lap, it'd be okay. And so what David, I think, is saying here is that I don't ask why, I don't go down that road, but, 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 but I, I do pray, I do worship, I, I do read the Bible, I, I, I draw near to God, I'm a child before God, I'm 
Martha or Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. I'm the lamb just laying there next, next to the shepherd. Just wanted to be close to the shepherd. I, I draw near to God. When I'm in his presence, that's enough. I just rely on him for comfort. I lean on him. I meditate on his law day and night. I sit in silence before him. I, I, I want to behold his beauty. I just want to be near God. I'm a child. I'm in the lap of God. I'm trying to get there. And then he says, verse 3, and I hope. I don't go down the dead-end road of the philosophy how this happened to me. But I do everything I can to get into the lap of God. Try to get there. And the Bible says in Isaiah 57, 15, that the Lord is high, he reigns in heaven, so to speak, but he's also with the broken and the contrite. Some versions say the contrite and the humble. It's an interesting mix. Because to be broken or contrite is the imagery is that of a glass that's been shattered. So God is near those who have been completely shattered in life. If they're humble, He's near the contrite and the humble. But you gotta have both. If you're proud, if you're hard, if you're indifferent, if you're resistant, even though you're broken, God isn't near. But if in your brokenness you humble yourself before God, God's near to you. It's a powerful passage because, again, that's not really where we are left to our own devices. I mean, hard times make hard people. I mean, there's a tendency when life just caves in on you to shake your fist towards God and to push away into some dark place in your life. But David says, I do the opposite. I don't shake my fist, but I draw near to the light of God. And then he says, verse 3, and I hope. I put my hope in God. Because however bad it is, I can always hope because my God is the God of Jacob. Jacob made a mess. But God saves people who make messes. My God is the God of Joseph. Joseph was in a deep, dark place in a prison. But God delivers people from prisons. I serve the God of Job. Job was in a deep, dark place. But by the end of the book, God gave him double for his trouble. I serve the God of Daniel. He was in a lion's den, but he got out of a lion's den. I serve the God of Meshach. Abednego and the other guy and they were in a deep dark fiery furnace but they got out that's the kind of God I serve I serve the God of Esther who thought she was dead meat but God exalted her and put her in on the throne and gave her influence over the king it was a hopeless situation but God helps in those situations so the God of Ruth Ruth went home to Na with Naomi. It looked like they were going home to die, but she was going home to find the love of her life. It looked pretty hopeless, but God is the God of Ruth. He's the God of the hopeless. 
What does he do? He supplies our needs. He can. I mean, if you got a need, he's the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he owns the hills and the grass on the hills and the blue sky above the grassy hills and the stars in the blue sky above the grassy hills and the sun among the stars in the sky above the grassy hills and the galaxies above and beyond the sun and the stars in the blue sky above the grassy hills with the cows on it. Supplies your needs. And not only does he supply your needs, he's the God who removes obstacles. He takes kings and he sits them on the throne like Napoleons and, and uh, Nebuchadnezzars. And just when they think they're invincible, he tears them down and he puts them in the field or he sends them off the islands to show his power. That's the kind of God he, we serve. And he restores. Amos said, or he said to Amos of Samaria, he said, although Samaria... Is like a lamb in the mouth of a lion with two legs and an ear left. I'll restore it. You give him two legs and an ear and he can restore your life. He's a God who comes along and restores what the locusts have taken. Ezekiel says, that's the kind of God you hope in. God who's able. He's a God who still heals. He's a God who still delivers. He's the God who still brings us out of temptations. He's the God who still strengthens and sustains. That's the kind of God you got. So you always got hope. Got hope. David says, I'll hope. I'm not going down that road of trying to figure out why these things happen to me. Why well, am I going to draw near to God? Till my dying breath, I'm going to live with hope in my heart. He raises the dead. Raises the dead. If he wants to raise me even after I'm dead, he can do that. I got hope. Kind of God you serve. Kind of God I serve. That's really simple, isn't it? It's really simple. But David says, that's how you handle those kinds of problems. Gardner Taylor was one of the great preachers of the last, I don't know, 50 years or so. And um, <clears throat> when he was nine years old, his dad died. and They didn't have a lot of money. Gardner Taylor was a great African-American uh, preacher. and This was back in the 30s when it looked tough for a young mother with a son. And he said, I remember when we buried dad, and we went home to that little apartment. I think it might have been in Brooklyn. I'm not sure. I know he pastored in Brooklyn. He said, my mom went into the house and went into the bedroom or, or the little apartment, went into the bedroom and closed the door. And I sat out on the other side of the door and I cried and she was on the inside and she was crying. In my tears, I said, Mama, what are we going to do? He said, from the other side of the door came those words, God will make a way. God will make a way. God will make a way. God will make a way for you, too. Make a way in your life. I don't know what your problem is, 
But God will make a way. You humble yourself. You make yourself like a child. You just sit quietly in his presence. But you hope. Don't lose hope. Stand with me. Brother Casey, what's that chorus you started down the road? Cast our care on you. We go down that road today. I cast all my cares upon you. Leave it there. Here comes singly. Anybody need to leave something here tonight? Maybe you're downhearted and you've lost all hope. Why, why don't you leave your depression just here? Why don't you leave it here tonight? Got some anxiety? Why don't you leave that here tonight? You got some despair? Why don't you just leave that here tonight? Why don't you just unpack some of your stuff? Leave it here. Don't take it home. Just, just, just leave it here. I was thinking this afternoon, and I'm finished here. I was thinking about Sarah. Remember Sarah, Genesis chapter 18. And uh, Abraham and Sarah had lost all hope of having a child. 24 years previous, they had been told they were going to have a child. Uh, but, and so God showed up with two angels. He came to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I want to see Sarah. And he said, because Sarah's having a baby next year. And the Bible says Sarah was on the inside of the house and she laughed in her spirit. And uh, God spoke to her and he said, Sarah, you laughed, didn't you? And she said, no, I didn't laugh. And he said, no, you lied, you laughed. But in verse 14 of that chapter, he said to Sarah, a word I want to give to you, he said, is anything too possible, impossible for God, Sarah? Is anything impossible for God? Anything impossible for God in your life? Is there anything God can't do in your life? That's the question. Well, if nothing's impossible for God, you ought to have hope. You ought to have hope. If there's a God on the throne, you ought to have hope. Why don't you leave your despair down here? Why don't you leave your depression? I came 400 miles to preach this sermon. It's for somebody. You leave some stuff here at the altar. Father, I pray for those who stand here. I know some of what they're going through, but I don't know all of it. I just know the tip of the iceberg and a few lies. And I know there are people here with lots of questions, maybe about what has come of their life. Our Heavenly Father, may they find rest in you. They may not know why, but if they've got you, that's enough. That's enough. And if they've got you, they got hope. And it's hope that will help them float in their situation. They're not going under the waves. If they got hope, they'll float. Father, they got to believe that in their spirits. They got to believe that in their hearts or it doesn't do any good.
Pray, Lord, that you'll feed your people today. And help them, Lord, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Come on, let's sing together. Come on, Brother Casey. Are there others? Are there others? Anyone need to be anointed tonight? Take your burdens to You have hope? Come on, be anointed tonight. If you trust and never doubt, he will surely bring you out. Take your burdens to so hard to bear we lift our face toward heaven God are you really there well, I've asked that same question and I've been down that road and looking back I now can tell you He's always let me know there is hope, so hold on, there is hope, God has sent me here to tell you there is hope, and he knows just what you're going and what the future holds as long as Jesus leaves there is hope he was bruised for our transgressions and nailed upon a tree he cried out to the father why have you forsaken me but through this suffering Savior he brought healing to our pain and the one who raised him from the dead shall restore us all again there is hope so hold on there is hope me here to tell you there is hope and he knows just what you're going through and what the future holds as long as Jesus lives there is hope he promised he would share our sorrows and bear our heavy load this road that we are traveling will someday turn to gold there is hope so hold on there is hope God has sent me here 
to tell you there is hope and he knows just what you're going through and what the future holds as long as Jesus believes there is hope as long as Jesus believes there 